We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. Uh, we start tonight, as we always do, to those of you who have been here before, no, we start tonight uh, differently than we always do. Uh, to those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been to the clubhouse before, welcome home. Uh, it is an honor and pleasure to say welcome home to the New York Giants Preservation Society. And we also say welcome to Peter McGowan and Robert Garrett. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Jay, for all you've done to create this uh, beautiful museum. And thank you, Gary, uh, for uh, leading the New York Giants Preservation Society as well as you have. You really breathed a lot of fresh air into it. And uh, my wife and I and our friends, the Brooks, just came from Finnerty's before we came over here. And let me tell you, that place was packing. And I think they got a lot of your members uh, down there in the bar. Uh, it was fun to be there. Seeing all this black and orange there reminded me that being here in January when we had the World Series trophy. In fact, we had two World Series trophies uh, to look at. So, Gary, you've done a great job. Thank you very much. Uh, my love affair with baseball started when I was eight years old. My dad took me to my first game, which was played in the Polo Grounds between the Phillies and the Giants. It was a night game. He was born in... Uh, Chester, Pennsylvania, so I think he wanted me to become a Philly fan, as he was. But when I saw the Giants' uniform uh, and I saw the Polo Grounds, I said, this is where I want to be. I want to go to the Polo Grounds and I want to watch that team in orange and black. And so my love affair started when I was eight years old. Sure enough, nine years old, uh, I had the happiest day of my life uh, in school. Uh, when I was nine. Now, most people don't have the happiest day of their life uh, in, in school. Uh, when they're nine years old, I mean, they get married, they have their first child. Uh, many happy things happen. Um, but I still will say this, my wife understands me when I say it. My happiest day was October 3rd, 1951, and I was listening to the game with uh, our class. We had a very tough uh, teacher, and he wouldn't allow us to listen to baseball games, but we prevailed on him, and he allowed us to listen to that game, and half the crowd were Dodger fans, half were Giants fans. There was no Yankee fans there. We all hated the Yankees because they won all the time. And uh, we, Bobby Johnson hit his home run, won the game, and I came home just on cloud nine. My dad comes through the front door, and he says to me, yes, where I have been today. And I said, you couldn't have been there. And he said he was there. And then he said, would you like to go to the World Series which started the next day against the Yankees? Now, I, I had been sick with flu or whatever they had in those days and pushed out the front door. I'd never missed a day of school. But when my dad said, we'd like to go to the World Series, I said, that would be fine. <laughs> so he went. I'll give you a little a little quiz now. If anybody can answer any of these questions, you're very, very good. Who pitched that game for the Giants? Very good. Dave Poslow. Dave Poslow is a left-handed pitcher, and we just finished playing three games against the Dodgers, who were all right-handed batters. The only left-handed batter was Duke Snyder. So Poslow is the only guy that was rested. And uh, so he pitched, everybody's surprise, and beat the Yankees 5-2. to two. Uh, somebody stole home. You can't answer this question. Somebody, somebody stole home. 
Monty Irvin stole home. This is really <laughs> Monty Irvin stole home. That's right. Um, okay, now I'll ask you a third one. That who scored the tying run? Who was on third base when Bobby Thompson hit his home run? To Everybody thinks. <laughs> you guys are too good. If I got anything tougher than that, you know, I don't think I got anything tougher than that. So that was. Okay, I'll ask you one more. That 1951 team had on it six people, six out of the 25, who uh, became major league managers. Can anybody name six people? Thank you. Westrom was two. Herman Franks. Herman Franks. So Herman Franks is the tricky one. So we got through the trickiest Alvin one. Dark. Alvin yeah. Dark. Woody Lockman. Yeah, we said Stanky. Bill Riggie. Bill Riggie. There you go. So I, I got to, I got to give you guys round of applause. I really didn't think you were that good, but uh, I'm, I'm impressed. So now we have to uh, think back of. Giants won the World Series in 54. Dodgers won the World Series in 55. Three years later, both these teams are gone from New York City, biggest city in the country, largest city, biggest city in the country, and, and richest city in the world. And they couldn't support three baseball teams anymore. And I couldn't believe it uh, when they left. I was absolutely heartbroken. Um, but that's the way it, it was. And then you go back 35 years later, and I'm in a position to prevent that from happening again in uh, San Francisco. And my problem was that I was on the board of the Giants, had been for 11 years. The owner was Bob Lurie, he was a good friend of mine. And uh, I didn't want to sort of get into an argument with him because he really decided that this was the best thing for him to do was to sell the team. And uh, I told him how unpopular he would be in San Francisco. So I'm sure your grandfather would have been in New York. Um, but he said he just couldn't keep on losing money doing all this. So um, I said, well, I've got to do everything I can to try to stop you. And so we went to work to try to put together a group that would keep the Giants in, in uh, San Francisco. And there are two parts of that story that I thought you might find interesting because I don't think they've been ever told before. And one was that uh, eventually Bob Lurie said, well, if you're going to buy the Giants, you're going to have to match the offer that I've got from Tampa Bay. So I said, fine. And the offer was $100 million. And so that's what we had to match. So I said, fine, uh, but can I please see the uh, contract? And so I saw the contract. And on page 11, I think it was, on the left side of the page was a declaration that Mr. Lurie was going to keep $10 million in the Tampa Bay Giants or whatever they were going to be called down there. So I said, well, that's good. There's $10 million I didn't know that we could find. And so eventually put our group together and asked $5 million from this person, $5 million from that person, $5 million from this person. The biggest investors are putting in $5 million. But $10 million from Bob Lurie. And he said, $10 million? What do you mean, $10 million? You said... I had to match the Tampa Bay offer so on page 11. <laughs> so that's how we did. And then the last $5 million that we got, we were at $95 million. We needed to get to 100 And Larry Bear, who's the guy that talked me into all of this in the first place, uh, who's done a terrific job over the last 20 uh, years with the Giants, uh, Larry called me up. He said, I think I know where the five, we can get $5 million. And I said, where is that? He says, 
KTVU Channel 2 um, uh, Fox, I mean Cox Broadcasting. And I, he said, but we better hurry because tonight's the deadline. And I said, I think that's a company that can make its mind up quickly. And he says, well, how, how do you know that? I said, I used to be on their board. <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, fine. So uh, we go over there. But I didn't tell him the whole story. I was on the board. I was recruited onto the board. And it was a private company, and they wanted to go public. So they wanted some public board members. And I agreed to be one of the public board members. And then after three years of being a public company, they wanted to go private. So we all had to meet together down over Easter Sunday in Atlanta where they were headquartered. And uh, uh, we were asked to vote. Uh, I think the stock was around $45 a share. And the chairman said, I think we should be paying uh, ourselves $60 a share to buy all the shareholders out. And everybody in favor. Everybody put up their hands in favor except me and one other guy. And uh, Peter, why aren't you putting up your hand? I said, how do I know that $60 is a fair price? And if it's not a fair price, we're all going to get sued. We're going to have to pay more, um, etc. So I said, I can't stay on the board if you're going to stick with this $60 deal. So I resigned from the board because they stuck with their number. Needless to say, they did have to pay. I think they had to pay $80 a share. And they did get sued, and they got into a lot of trouble, but the deal went through. I'm not telling Larry any of this. We go into the KTV offices, <laughs> and we run into the general manager, and we make our pitch as to why he ought to um, uh, put in five million. He said, you're the TV station that's been here since 1958. Um, uh, you're going to look like a local hero that helped save us, which you would be. Um, it would be good for your broadcasting station, good for the image. And he says, I think it sounds like a great idea. Let's go call up um, Jimmy Cox, the CEO. His grandfather, by the way, ran for president in 1920, former governor of Ohio. So <laughs> we, we get Mr. Um, uh, Cox on the phone, and the KTVU manager goes through the spiel of why we need $5 million. And uh, Jimmy Cox says, well, now, who's in this group that we're going to hand the $5 million over to? And he says, oh, we've got all the luminaries in San Francisco. We've got, um, we've got Chuck Schwab, runs Schwab and Company. We've got Don Fisher, runs The Gap. We've got Walter Shorenstein. He's got uh, the biggest real estate empire in, the, in San Francisco. Peter McGowan, who runs Safeway. And he goes through the list of the major investors. It was a pretty good group. Bill Hewlett was in there, Hewlett Packard. And so, and he says, who's going to run it? And, and Kevin O'Brien, the station manager, says, Peter McGowan is dead boss. <laughs> and that's it. There go the giants to Tampa Bay. But he basically said, if Peter McGowan's going to run it, then you've got our $5 million. Wow. So I thought that was pretty nice. Yeah. So we just, just in the stages, this was all in November of 92, and all of a sudden Barry Bonds becomes available. <laughs> And Barry Bonds was the best player in the game. He had just finished winning the MVP uh, in 1992 with the Pirates. Uh, he'd won it also in 1990. His godfather was Willie Mays. Uh, his father was Bobby Bonds, who played a great role with the Giants. And it looked to Larry and me just like such a natural fit if we could somehow persuade Barry Bonds to play for the San Francisco Giants. So Larry said to me, we've got nothing to lose. Let's Let's... 
call them up. And I said, yeah, but I think we ought to get permission from the Giants, at least some permission. And I knew that Bob Lurie wasn't going to be in favor of this. So we called up Al Rosen, the general manager, and we said, Al, we're looking over the roster, and it looks to us, the Giants had lost 92 games the previous year, like we could use some help in left field. And I said, let's go through these outfielders and tell me what you think of them. First one, the guy who played there most of the time last year, a fellow called Corey Snyder. What do you think of him? Led the league in strikeouts. <laughs> so then we said, well, how about uh, Kevin Bass? Well, he used to be a good player, but he gets injured all the time. How about Tiny Fielder? Tiny Fielder is a fifth outfielder on a four-outfield team. <laughs> and I think there was one of the guy, uh, Chris James, and Chris James, he says he's... he's He's what we call a 4A player. He's not. He's too good for AAA. He's not good enough for major leagues. So he said, well, you, but, but he says, you're going to need somebody out there. And so we said, well, what about Barry Bonds? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, Barry Bonds, are you kidding? And he said, well, you know, might as well be the Giants take a shot at him as anybody else. He says, if you get Barry Bonds, you will have a team that uh, can really go places. So with that as permission to negotiate for Barry Bonds, we went off and negotiated, and I met with his agent the next day, and the, we met at the San Francisco Hilton Hotel, and uh, it was the only negotiation I ever did in my 17 years with the Giants, and the negotiation went somewhat like this. So the agent was Dennis Gilbert. Dennis, we're very interested in Barry Bonds, father's Bobby Bonds, Godfather is Willie Mays. He needs to be a giant. He grew up in the Giants clubhouse. Mans Gilbert nods his head yes. And I said, he's the best player in the game. Two MVPs the last three years. I said, the best player in the game should be the best paid. Nods his head again. <laughs> the best paid guy right now is Ryan Sandberg, second baseman of Chicago Cubs. Nods his head. He knows all these things, obviously. I said, Ryan Sandberg has paid $7.1 million. And so we proposed to pay Barry Bonds $7.2 million. Ryan Sandberg had signed for four years. We proposed to give Barry Bonds five years. What do you think about that? And he says, he has his heart set on seven years. So I said, how about six? And he said, done. <laughs> it, it took that long. It's about 40, 43 seconds to spend 43 million. But there was one problem, which was can you guess what the problem might have been? We did not own the team. So here we were committing to Mr. Bonds. We would give him 43 million, but we had no legal right to be able to make such an offer. Next day, the Winter League meetings open, and I go to the Winter League meetings with Larry Bear, and we're announcing our press conference here. We're, we've already agreed with Bob Lurie on the sale of the team of $100 million. It just hadn't been really officially approved by Major League Baseball yet, but we had our deal. And so we had organized a press conference with uh, Barry Bonds there, his father there. Uh, so Barry gets on the stage, black suit, white shirt, red tie, everything ready to go. But we got an urgent message from the commissioner to cancel our press conference. So we yanked Barry off the stage, and he said, and the commissioner wants to see you. And the commissioner's suite is on the seventh floor. So Larry and I go up the seventh floor, and there we find the commissioner of baseball, the president of the National League, the head of the ownership committee, 
the chief lawyer for the National League, never a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no one was smiling in that room. And they said, who the hell do you people think you are? Coming in here and paying more money than anyone's ever played, paid for a baseball player, you don't even own the team. You're going to have to, and oh, Bob, I forgot, Bob Lurie was there. And Bob Lurie, you have no permission from him. And Larry Bear says, well, yeah, we sort of do. We talked to Al Rosen about it. He thought it was a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> and Al Rosen took his bony finger and he put it in, he put it in Larry Bear's chest like this. And he did. I might have said Barry Bonds is a good baseball player, but I never said that uh, you could spend my boss's money to that extent. So we had to figure out how to get Barry Bonds his $43 million, no matter what, because that's what we promised him. Now, Bob Lurie would never have a dime's worth of obligation if he didn't want it. And um, uh, the only way we could figure this out was to say that uh, we, the ownership group, would now be the ex-ownership group if Bob Lurie stayed in control of the team and he didn't want Barry Bonds. And we, the ex-ownership group, would make up whatever difference between the $43 million that we paid Barry Bonds or offered to pay him and what he was able to get on the free agent market. So if he could only get, let's say, $38 million, we, the ex-ownership uh, people, after that contract of $38 million had expired, would owe $5 million even though we were not in, in baseball. And everyone said, your owners are never going to agree to do that. Uh, but the long story short was that's how we got Mr. Mr. Bonds. So then we had to start tackling... And by the way, with Barry Bonds, and really almost, almost no other change in the team, we went from uh, 70 wins and 92 losses in 92 to 103 wins and 59 losses in 93. More wins than the Giants have ever had. Ever before, the World Series years, 10, 12. We never won 103 games in the regular season, but we did in that first year. Bonds, of course, was the MVP. His first time up at the plate in Candlestick, long home run. So was, we drew 2.6 million fans that year. It's 500,000 more than the Giants had ever drawn. It's a million one more than the previous year. So it was really a very special uh, year and became a very special career, I think. And say what you will about Barry Bonds and steroids and everything else. If Barry Bonds had quit in 1999 and no one had ever accused him of any steroids before used before that. But if he had quit in 1999, he'd have been in the Hall of Fame. There's no question about it. He was the best player of his generation by far. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just ask any of the people that played against him, the managers who would do everything they could to walk him and to avoid him. Um, anyway, um, he, he was a very special player. And he was the one that really made the difference between that huge swing I'll never forget that last day, though, that 1993 season. I had seen during the All-Star break, we were going to end the year on October 3rd, 1993. We were going to play the Dodgers. Well, we played them in 51 on October 3rd. We played them in 62 on October 3rd. Beat them both times to get into the World Series. We played them on October 3rd in 1982, and Joe Morgan had a home run to knock the Dodgers out of the playoffs. So... 
I called up Willie Mays and I said, you got to sit next to me. This <laughs> I, I need all the luck we could have. You sit on this side. And I called Bobby Thompson up and I said, and you sit on this side. And we'll attack this, this problem. And for three days at work, we beat the Dodgers three in a row. We'd won 14 at 16 to get into that position of tying the Braves on the last day of the season. And uh, wasn't enough. We lost that last game 12 to 1. It was a pretty sad occasion. People just crying in the clubhouse. You know, we won 103 games, and now we've got no place to go. We can't even make the playoffs when we won 103 games. Then we got into the stadium, and I won't bore you with a lot of details about the stadium, except that uh, we were told by a lot of people. Um, it'll never get done. First of all, you're going to have an election. Uh, Mr. Leary lost four of them. You can't win an election. Uh, second, you're going to have, you say, a privately financed stadium. It's never been done. You're not going to be able to finance it. Third, even if you do finance it, you're going to spend so much money on servicing the debt that you won't be able to put a good team on the field. <laughs> and remember, this is a football town. The 49ers won five Super Bowls. They own this town. You're still going to draw 19000 on a Monday night against the Montreal Expos. You know, this is what they said. And uh, we built a beautiful ballpark. We've drawn 3 million, uh, 11 years out of 13 or more. We've been sold out almost three years in a row now. And fans love the ballpark. Um, and I think the ballpark is what's going to keep the Giants safe from ever the threat of moving again. They almost went to Montreal I mean, to Toronto in 1976 when Mr. Stoneham sold the team. They almost went to Tampa Bay, and uh, now I think we don't have any fear about the Giants going. Um, since I left baseball, what I miss about it is the people that are in the game, the stories that are, that are there you hear, and you hear these funny, funny stories from scouts or umpires or old wizened coaches or whatever. And I had a few of my favorites. And one, I was with my wife, Debbie. We saw Stan Musial once when we were playing the Cardinals in the playoffs. Very nice man, Stan Musial, one of the greatest players ever played the game of baseball. And uh, he says, you know, the last time I was in your city and I played at Candlestick Park, I went 5-5. Five five. And I was 42 years of old, of age. And so I said, Damn, that's just fantastic. You went five for five, 42? He says, that's not the good part of the story. Said, What's the good part of the story? The good part of the story was that the night before, Mr. Stoneham came down to the clubhouse and he said, Stan, since this is going to be your last time ever in San Francisco as a player, you and I are going to go out on the town. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, at 9 a.m., I showed up dead, drunk, horrible headache, lay down in the clubhouse, try to get me up, put me in a cold shower, try to recover from that. It, national anthem played. I don't think I ever missed a national anthem, but I was still putting my uniform on. And uh, then I got got up there, <laughs> no batting practice, and I went five for five. So I, that was a pretty good story. And then when we, my another favorite was Willie Mays. Willie had been a bit estranged from the Giants um, when our group took over, and I called him up one day and I said, Willie, you really ought to be a Giant. He says, I want to be a Giant. I am a Giant. I always was a Giant. Those years of the Mets didn't count. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, okay, 
uh, come up to my office, let's talk about it. So I said, Willie, I want to offer you a contract to be a giant. How long, he says. A long one. Well, how long? <laughs> I said, a lifetime contract. Tears come down his cheeks. A lifetime contract? I haven't done anything to prove that I deserve a lifetime contract. Yes, you have, I said. Well, and how much money? <laughs> money. Money was fine. Ten years goes by, and he calls me up. And he says, Peter, I need to come see you. I said, come on, anytime. So he comes into my office, and he says, we need to discuss my contract. <laughs> I said, is there something wrong with the contract? Yes. He says, We're not paying you enough money? No, 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 the money is fine. It's, it can't be the length of the contract. <laughs> yes, it is. It's the length of the contract. You want a shorter one? No, I want a longer one. <laughs> and so uh, I said, why? And he says, i got to take care of my wife, May Mays. And when I die, I need another year for her to adjust to not having me around. It would mean a lot to me if I could have another year on that contract. So I said, fine. And I'm a little bit embarrassed at this. It shows how much he loved May Mays, and it also shows what a good negotiator Willie Mays was. <laughs> the only guy I know has ever extended a lifetime. <laughs> and then two more brief stories. One is on Felipe Alou, who's one of my very favorite giant people, even though I had to fire him because the general manager loved him so much he wouldn't fire him. <laughs> I had to fire Barry Bonds, by the way, too, because the general manager wouldn't fire him. He said, Peter, you hired him, so you fire him. I said, no, it's your job. You run the play. No, not this player. <laughs> so I had to fire the, the two of them. Um, anyway, Philippe Lou, one day we're down in spring training. It's last day of spring training with Ned Coletti and Brian Sabian. And we say to Felipe or Brian does we're trying to figure out Felipe how many pitchers we need on our team do we need 11 or do we need 12 and he says well he says this reminds me of the story of a cruel Haitian dictator in the 18th century and we're looking at each other (laughs) cruel Haitian dictator of the 18th century he says yes he wanted to build a palace in his honor that would last forever and he wanted to put it at the top of the hill and he wanted as his cornerstone the largest rock in the island to serve as the cornerstone of that palace. So he got all his slaves together to search for that rock. They found it, and they started to uh, roll it up the hill. But it rolled back down again. And we're all looking at each other. Flip it. This was a simple question. <laughs> so he rolled it up a second time, and it rolled in. And he rolled it up a third time and it rolled in. Whereupon the cruel Haitian dictator took out his revolver, shot six of the twelve slaves, and the other six rolled it right up the hill. (laughs) I guess we need eleven pictures. (laughs) And my final story is is one that I heard just uh, when we were all back here in January when when Buster Posey got his MVP award over Yogi Berra Stadium. And Earl Weaver had died uh, that day. And uh, Earl Weaver, I'm, I'm sure you all remember him, the way he kicked dirt on all the umpires and throw his hat down and everything. Well, the Orioles were playing the Yankees one day, and the Orioles had the bases loaded in the eighth inning, and they were behind the Yankees by one run, 
and they had this outfielder, and I might have his name wrong. I got the story right, but I might have the outfielder wrong. His name was Elijah James, a very pious individual. And, uh, and he was up there with the bases loaded. The count was three and two. The next pitch was way outside, so ball four, so now we've got a tie game. But Elijah James swings at the ball and misses. And so now the side is retired. The Orioles are still behind. So Elijah James, the pious left fielder, he turns around to go back to the dugout. And as he does, he sees Earl Weaver tearing up his scorecard, take off his hat, throws it on the ground, stomps around on the bases. And Elijah says, Mr. Weaver, Mr. Earl, he says, Mr. Earl, you need to learn to walk with the Lord. You can't act this way. You need to learn to walk with the Lord. And Weaver turns around and says, Elijah, you need to learn to walk with the bases loaded. (laughs) (laughs) I have got baseball stars all night long, but I've taken up enough of your time. It's been a pleasure being with all of you guys. And if you have any questions, uh, Rob and I will try to answer them. If you want to sit back near Roger's chair. I don't know, sitting on this blue chair gives me bad advice. Yes. Is it possible to get a recording of that old song where calling all fans, all giant ball fans? I, I, I saw it. This is the old New York Giants song, right? I don't know it. Um, where, where, somebody here might know Sam Arrow was the narrator on that show. Yeah. Uh, I, that was written by our school. What the song was? Oh, wow. I'm looking for it. I can't say tell you that I ever heard it, so I don't know anything about it. Anything else? Any questions? Yes. You you came into baseball and uh, had a great year, and then the next year the strike came. Right. Uh, what memories do you have? Did you did you train that could have gotten so bad? So no, August twelfth. August 12, uh, 1994. And there's a picture of me, which I have on my wall, to remind me that baseball has its ups and baseball has its downs. The down. yeah. stadium is empty, and I'm talking to the press about the strike. And you have never seen anybody look more dejected than me. Mm-hmm. And no, one in, no team in baseball suffered more in terms of an attendance decline than the San Francisco Giants. Uh, we went from uh, 2.6 million that first year. We were on a path to draw 2.4 million the second year, which still would have been by far the best year we ever had, except for '93. And in 1995, we drew 1.2. So we were cut in half, and then we built that up over the next five years to get up to 2 million in our old stadium. But that was the low point, and um, uh, I think the worst day probably ever for baseball. I mean, you. World War One didn't cancel anything. World War Two didn't cancel anything, but we couldn't get through this this strike, and we were so far apart with, from the players' union position and our position as owners. Um, it was just too big a gap to bridge. But we had to do something. But I, I don't think anybody ever thought it was going to end up in a strike. There is one that that strike year. There was one casualty that I remember very clearly. Matt Williams had 44 home runs. Yeah, right, right. 
when the strike happened. Right. 44 home runs. On, on August uh, uh, 12th. Right. So he had another good six weeks of the season with 44 home runs. Mike so, did you did you realize that the new stadium, you were arguably going from the worst parking base, did you know right away that this was a grand slam? Can't miss. We we thought it was going to be a great stadium. That, that I was in it almost every day for 27 months when it was being built. And it, I, 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 there are certain things I remember. I remember when Barry Bonds came out to hit the balls to all the groundskeepers. And they're about I'm the groundskeepers, all the construction workers, about 150 <laughs> of them out in the field. And the field was all sand then. There was no grass or anything. And the excitement of these construction workers. And the excitement they had in building the ballpark. They said, you know, you wanted us to build a park where the fans would be close to the action. Let me tell you, they're going to be closer than you ever thought they were going to be. So I, I think the look of the stadium and the intimacy of it, uh, it has the best of the best old ballparks like Wrigley and, and Fenway. Um, and, I mean, I did I ever think that we wouldn't be able to find any left-handed hitters other than Barry Bonds that could hit a home run in that park? No, I didn't think that. I thought it was going to be a left-handed hitter's park, which it turned out clearly not to be. What was your reaction at the first game? Were you home? Did you think it was going to be a hitter's park after that? <laughs> the first game, first game we, we had uh, Kirk Reeder pitching. Great, great guy, Kirk Reeder. And uh, this was going to be a famous first pitch, uh, according to Dusty Baker, our manager. So he goes to Kirk Reeder and he says, Kirk, the one thing you must not do here is throw a ball over the plate that ends up in, in the water or ends up in the outfield and we don't get it because that ball's going to be valuable. So throw the goddamn thing outside. <laughs> so the first pitch was ball one. But Kevin Elster, of all people, hit, hit three home runs that day. And after the first week, the slowest man in the league, Doug Mirabelli, had two triples. <laughs> we had a special ballpark with Doug Mirabelli with two triples. Actually, I have something for both of you. Um, Robert, um, you were saying that Horace was uh, looking to head west ahead of time, and Jamie has great insight on that as well. But I found in he didn't really have a great interest to stay either because in researching the Hulan Jack papers, Hulan Jack met with Horace Stoneham between 1954 and 1957 once. And if he had any interest in staying in Manhattan, it probably would have been more than that. And Peter, um, did you ever have any designs of putting any elements of the polo grounds into Yeah, if I could find them. <laughs> <laughs> we had a big New York Giants sign that we, that we did find. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of that stuff went missing. And if you people can find anything from the polo grounds that we can stick in that ballpark, we will stick it there. We have some things. We have some seats and things. No, but I mean in but design elements, did you ever stick uh, Not uh, the flags on the roof. Mm. Oh, that's true. Um, but that was, was mostly Wrigley Field, I think, more than anything else. Wrigley had the bullpens on the field, but Seeley told me to take them off because he says these outfielders are going to stumble over them. And uh, the ball players won't like them. And I said, yes, but the fans will. We're here to please the fans, Mr. Commissioner. We're here to please the fans. No, 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 you've got to take them away. And then he, we had an outfield wall, 24 foot high in right field, 7 and a half foot high. He says, I want symmetrical wall everywhere. No, Mr. Commissioner, we need a high wall because we have a short right field. If we have a 7 foot wall, somebody's going to hit 82 home runs in here. So we had all these fights with him on the layout of the ballpark. And he, he wouldn't, he said, I just won't permit this. It goes against all our regulations. 
So I said, then you come out to San Francisco, you hold a press conference, and you tell the public why the free stadium that we were going to build them isn't going to get built. <laughs> and at that point, you can see. <laughs> yeah. Relative to the polygons, with the A's leaving their uh, spring training park next year, I understand the polygon lights are at the Phoenix Stadium. Or yeah, I think. Is there, is there I any think. Chance of them going to Scottsdale? They, that's a that's a very good question. That's a good question. I completely forgot about that. I didn't know the polygon lights of the A's ballpark in 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 Phoenix. Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll find out. Peter, can you say anything about the um, election that that uh, allowed the ballpark to get through? I know it was sort of a unique strategy. Uh, Cecil Williams, Roberta Actenberg. Yeah, and Quentin Kopp, the three most unlikely political people. I mean, they all hated each other, but they all liked the idea of building a privately financed ballpark. Whose idea was it to put that uh, that together? Larry Bear and me. We we, we basically, whatever, you know, words came out of his mouth, he'd start the sentence, I'd finish it. So it was really the two of us. And... uh, a lot of people always ask, why did you have an election for a free ballpark? And the reason why we had to have an election was that we had to get a zoning permit to build a high structure on the waterfront. And so it was a waterfront use issue. And if we hadn't gone on the, on the ballot, the opposition would have. So we wanted to phrase it the way we wanted to phrase it. And then we wanted a very short election campaign. Ours was only six weeks. So there wasn't a lot of time for the people opposed to us um, to mount their campaign. And we won the 67% of the vote, which is not easy to do in San Francisco. No. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just a quick question about the very bonds negotiations. Was there any real danger? Obviously, you entered negotiations with them, and obviously you must have felt we're going to get this team. Is there any real danger that things could fall apart? Well, <laughs> we, we were not very popular with the commissioner or with the ownership committee. They said, you, you people come in here and try to disrupt this game for all the rest of us. And we don't want people like that in our game, disrupting the game. But, and I said, what are we supposed to do? We're, we're in last place. Here. We lost 92 games. We're supposed to sit back and watch how it's done? The Braves are going to go after bonds. The Yankees are going to go after bonds. We're not allowed to? No, not until you buy the team. Then you have a legal right to do whatever you want to do. Even spend money foolishly like you're planning to do on that game. <laughs> So that was the risk that we just be turned down right. as owners because we had misbehaved, which we did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks, Peter. It's nice to have you here. I'm a baseball historian. I've written a book about the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. I have my own feelings about it. I can share them with anyone who wants to hear them. I'm wondering what you think about, and I hear this question all the time when I have presentations. Well, as I said, I think he deserves to be there because of what he accomplished even before he ever took these uh, uh, steroids. You know, the the steroids were so prevalent in baseball at the time. The pitchers that were throwing at him were on steroids, too. And there were a lot of other guys on steroids that did not hit 71 home runs and things of that kind. I think it's going to be always a tainted era known as the steroid era. I think that as the older writers disappear from the scene, 
they're more sort of emotional and they would like to say moral and all that. The young writers are more statistical. You know, what did this guy actually do? And I think as more more of the voting goes to the younger uh, voters, it will take time, but I think he will get in eventually. I've and should. Morley and Bell actually said something very similar. Yeah. My thinking is this that um, I think eventually they could have, and I've heard this talk, it's been spoken about this, they could separate, in other words, they would rearrange the whole whole thing going. They would say, Certain area, certain area, amphetamines. All the players, exactly right. All I mean, players for amphetamines. Uh, alcohol was a major problem in Major League Baseball in the beginning. Uh, so I think they could do it that way. And when you said that uh, the old writers, I think it's also like a Bill Madden from the Daily News. He's the character cause. He always brings that up. Jason Stark is saying, I'm not going to be judge and jury, especially of those 101 players that uh, we don't know about except for Alex Rodriguez. My final thing is this, that uh, during the fact, when they called, they had their show on Major League Baseball this year, and nobody got into the Hall of Fame, and Fergie Jenkins called up, and I had heard this rumor in the past, I think a lot of people here maybe have heard it, that there was somebody in the Hall of Fame already who took steroids. And that's right, as soon as he said that, I, he said, I don't know, and they asked him, you sure you don't know? Nope. We don't know yeah. who it was, but I think if that ever happens, they find well, you out. Got, you got Gaylord Perry in the Hall of Fame, spitball pitcher, totally against the rules, won 350 games. And, uh, well, they always say he Yeah, I'm a near murderer in Ty Cobb. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was psychological, they said, with Gaylord Perry. Well, not always. He'd go, no, it was more than psychological, but he'd go in the opposing dugout, put a lot of Vaseline on his hand, and shake hands with all the opposing players. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that scared the death that he was really definitely going to throw. And he said he might only throw four or five a game, but at a crucial time. But he, he definitely did throw. Thank you. Jamie, Craig, I mean, not that you need it, but based on Robert's work, do you feel a lot of retribution about your you know, um, you know, we, it's a very story, giant story franchise, and there's characters that go with it. I'm honored again that the, the truth of the man and the leadership and the change of the Giants. The Giants were about society, really. If you look at the movements that were part of America at that time, the Giants were the forefront of that. And I think that's something we can all be proud of. It's something that Peter continued. It's something that the current. Um, ownership does as well. So I think it's so much more than just a man, but it is about really true legacy of how great this team is and all the people involved. But Jamie and I are going to work hard in the next uh, year and a half to get your grandfather into the Hall of Fame, where I think he does belong. And uh, so uh, uh, I would say this too, and I it, it's one thing to look at the Giants leaving when you're 14 years old, and it's another thing looking at them leaving when you're 71 years old, and you like I am, and you spent time in, in baseball. But if you think back uh, to where the Giants were in 57, they were playing in an inner-city ballpark in a deteriorating area at a time that the population was moving to the suburbs. And would the people in the suburbs want to drive in to the polo grounds in their newly bought cars uh, to, to 
watch a night game when they had to work and get up in the morning and when it was in a dangerous area or an area becoming more dangerous. And then I think another thing was also happening at exactly that same period of time, and that was television. And I don't mean people staying at home watching television to watch baseball. I mean people staying at home to watch television to be entertained. Before there was television, you went to baseball games and you went to the movies. And what else did you do? But once TV showed up, then you had something for the family to enjoy at night from an entertainment point of view, and it worked against inner-city baseball teams mm-hmm. all over. And one, one last thing, too. When they had the the one of the last things, too, to me, has always been very interesting. When the Giants and the Dodgers left after 57, the Yankees were still there. And the Yankees won the pennant 47, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 55, 56, 57 against the Braves. Okay, so they they were a great team. The greatest team probably, despite the 1920s Yankees, this was probably the greatest era of any sports team in any sports world. So now the Yankees have New York City, the biggest city in the country, to themselves for 1958. And a great team again. Did their attendance go up or down? Down. Went down. One team instead of three, you'd think it would go up, but it didn't. It went down. That said something about how people missed the Giants and the Dodgers and baseball in general. And the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1957 outgrew the Giants. The Giants were last in home attendance in 1957. 600,000 plus something. Well, Gary, we, yes. This isn't really a Giants question, but I'd just like to ask you, what were your first thoughts when you heard that the major league had been sold for over $2 billion? The what? Your the first thoughts when you heard that the baseball team had been sold for over $2 billion? I, I was flabbergasted. It was a billion more than I thought they would get. And uh, they, what they were sitting on was the chance to negotiate a 50-year uh, television contract in which they could be major participants. I mean, w- we did our deal with Comcast, and uh, it sure increased the value of the, of the Giants to where we can really compete with almost anybody to get players that we need, etc. But I'm not sure we can compete financially with the Dodgers. I mean, they they are they are really in a league by themselves now. Um, but just because we can't spend with the Dodgers spend doesn't mean we can't beat them on the deal. Not this year. Not this year. Okay, I've got to go pretty soon. So, um, again, I would like to thank Gary for everything he's done to make this job.